0: Thanks for joining us. You're listening to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern.
1: And me, Robert Pester. We've got an absolutely action-packed show today. And before I get on to the action-packed show, I sent you a little present. You did. (laughs) Because I'm feeling excited about something. You
0: sent me your book, didn't you? This is your new thriller, which is out tomorrow, Thursday.
1: That's exactly right. It's called The Crash. And actually, the reason that sort of crashes are massively on my mind at the moment is, I don't know if you're aware, it's, it's 16 years to the day, more or less that I broke the story about Northern Rock going camping down to the Bank of England.
0: Yeah, remember it well.
1: <laughs> and it's almost the anniversary as well of that big seismic event that changed the entire global economy for the worse, which is the collapse of, of Lehman, Brothers. Lehman Brothers. And this yeah. book is a sort of thriller set in that world of the crash. And it's, I mean, you, you feel, I know you feel this way too. That was such an intense period, wasn't oh, it? It's sort of it was, When you think about it, it all comes flooding back, doesn't it? Yeah,
0: because obviously I was working as uh, your producer around that time and it was so busy. I mean, your phone... Honestly, if you'd have done one of those temperature checks on your phone, the heat coming off, that must have gone into your brain as you were constantly on it, talking to everyone about what was going on.
1: And the terrible thing about crashes is they do come round again. So you never know. During this, During the course of this series, we may see another crash. Who knows?
0: But the book's out now and it's called The Crash. And I'm in it. Am I? I'm, well, there's a character.
1: All, all the characters are sort of very, are amalgams of people and you are part of one particular character. So Excellent. you can tell me what you think of this particular character.
0: Is it going to be as thrilling as today's episode? Shall we tell everyone what we're doing? We're starting yeah. with the chief exec of BP quitting, aren't we, Bernard yeah, Looney? Yeah, well, I mean,
1: so, so that's exactly right. So action-packed edition today. We got Bernard Looney, the chief executive of BP, in effect being forced out because he misled the board about relationships he'd had with his colleagues, we're then gonna we're then we're then gonna get on to the fascinating story of alleged criminality in the music streaming industry and what the future of music streaming is. We're gonna look at whether a massive rise in the basic state pensions set for next year is fair. And then what are we gonna finish with?
0: Then we are also looking at Everton, aren't we? There's a a deal looking like it's going to go through at the moment with Everton uh, being sold to a Miami-based investment firm, 777. So we will talk about the business implications and what's going on there as well. So should we get started?
1: So I want to talk now about one of Britain's most important companies, BP. And a really extraordinary resignation last night by its chief executive and also a really remarkable corporate statement. I'm, I'm going to read you a little bit of what they put out last night. The board issued the following Words In May 2022, the board received and reviewed allegations with the support of external legal counsel, lawyers to you and me, relating to their chief executive, Bernard Looney's conduct in respect of personal relationships with company colleagues. The information came from an anonymous source back in May 2002, whistleblower in other words. During that review, Mr. Looney disclosed a small number of historical relationships with colleagues prior to becoming Chief Executive Officer. It's a job he's had for about three years. No breach of the company's code of conduct was found, but the board sought and was given assurances by Mr. Looney regarding disclosure of past personal relationships. This is also quite important, as well as his future behavior. So, Bernard Looney gave assurances to the board about what he'd done in the past and what he was going to do in the future in respect of relationships. And then, this is the sort of killer line. It says, further allegations of a similar nature were received recently, and the company immediately began investigating with the support, again, of lawyers, of external legal counsel. That process is ongoing. Bernard Looney has today informed the company that he now accepts that he was not fully transparent in his previous disclosures. He didn't provide details of all relationships and accepts he was under an obligation to make more complete disclosure.
0: Can I give you that in my borough version of it? A fella got caught having a couple of flings at work potentially a couple
1: well we don't know well we will flings we don't know how many it could be a couple could be more who knows
0: yeah this fella who's quite senior gets caught having a fling he then claims that it was before he was the big boss then it comes out that there's potentially more of these flings and it was while he was the big boss so it's a fella who's been caught with his pants down isn't it (laughs)
1: That indeed would be, I think, a pretty clear synopsis. But I think the fundamental point is this, which I don't know if all listeners would be aware of, simply because quite a lot of our listeners will be similar generation to us, and they will be aware that within companies, it used to be absolutely routine for bosses to have affairs with junior staff. And in many companies' codes of conduct now, that is frowned upon. In fact, it's completely against the rules because of the the power imbalance between a boss and an employee. And it is really, really striking how little tolerance boards now have of such conduct.
0: Well, yeah, things have really changed because, I mean, this does not shock me. Do you think there would be any business leaders left if we stopped all relationships in companies. Because, you know, if you look at someone like Bernard Looney, who we're talking about here, he's been in BP since he was 21. You know, he's he's grown up in BP. You know, he started right at the bottom. He's climbed his way right to the top. It's inevitable that the majority of his, you know, relationships, people in his life are going to be from his work because he spent his entire time there. Whether it's, I'm not saying it's right that he should have then had relationships, if, especially if, you know, he's in a senior job. Is it inevitable? Yes, because you, you're you with people from work way more than you are people at home, aren't you?
1: Well, it is certainly the case, I guess, particularly in a company with the incredibly strong culture of BP. And, you know, BP is one of the rare companies, I think, in this country where people are still to an extent lifers, join when they're young and never leave. And it's true that I imagine there are lots of BP couples. I'm sure there are lots of people who met in BP and married. I think, but the material issue is is less about having a relationship with somebody who is, you know, more or less the same level as you at the company. The issue is around whether companies are right to prohibit relationships between mm. the big boss or the bigger bosses and junior employees
0: yes because it's about power balance isn't it the fundamental problem here yeah, is whether yeah, yeah. he used his you know power to have these relationships and whether that helped people in their careers in the company when it shouldn't have or Which whether there was the power imbalance in terms of people feel intimidated or and, and I'm not saying that's what's happened in this case but the assumption of when a, a someone who, who's in a job of seniority has a relationship with someone who's a lot junior than them the concern is the welfare of the person who's the junior member in this.
1: Well it's the welfare it's whether they're in a position to say no I mean yeah, as I said exactly. obviously we don't know what happened in Bernard Looney's case and we do have to be absolutely clear. There's no suggestion he broke the law. We don't know the details of it. And I think the other point, just to stress at this stage, at this moment, and I think it is just important to focus a bit on the particular case, he has resigned because he appears to have accepted that he did not tell Mm. But certainly, the whole truth to the board. And the, the reason the board have had no hesitation in accepting his resignation, normally, when you get such an immediate resignation, broadly means the board have asked him to go. It's around the fact of, of misleading the most senior body within the company. Yeah. What, what the statement also says, which is quite interesting, is I mean, this is a guy who earned 10 million quid last year. He has in terms of unvested shares and options. I mean, he's left a fortune in the company. I think it's well over 10 million quid of personal wealth that he hasn't been able to get his hands on yet. And there's another statement by the board saying they haven't yet decided you know, whether he'll get a payoff, what portion of... The shares he's accumulated, he'll be allowed to keep. So there's there's a lot more of this story still to come out, I think it would be fair to say.
0: Yeah. And also, when I read this, I thought, gosh, this is really similar to, do you remember uh, Steve Easterbrook, who was the, the, the global CEO of McDonald's? And he was the kind of golden boy of McDonald's, wasn't he? Because he's a British guy who'd gone from store manager in 1993 to eventually becoming the overall CEO. And then he was fired in 2019, for sexting an employee apparently it wasn't a physical relationship he got caught sexting someone they ended up firing him he then got a payoff he ended up getting loads of money in a big payoff but then later on down the road eight months later more allegations came out and then they looked into his emails which he deleted he tried to delete and then they found more incriminating evidence of other relationships and then they ended up clawing back the money from him. So I think what we're seeing is this: it's the denial from people to begin with, isn't it? And then being caught out again later.
1: Obviously, one of the rules in life is it's the cover-up that always kills you. Um, and that appears to have certainly happened to Bernard Looney. And look, we shouldn't forget that, again, somebody who has no suggestion he broke the law, Tony Danker, the former boss of the CBI, got forced out because, you know, he was accused of making inappropriate comments on social media to junior colleagues and, you know, essentially, again, inappropriate contact with junior colleagues. So more widely, the standards that we now, I mean, I think most people say these are the right standards, but we expect... Uh, bosses to conduct themselves wholly professionally when it comes to relationship with their colleagues, and in particular their junior colleagues. The other thing which I'm reminded of, it is, gosh, I mean, sort of 16, 2007, 16 years since I was immersed. And One of the reasons I think I w- was so sort of bowled over last night when I saw this story break is because what came flooding back was a story about the way that another BP chief executive, Lord Brown, John Brown was forced out back in 2007. And he quit again with absolutely no notice. And he did it over a relationship in his case, He'd had a four-year relationship with a Canadian called Jeff Chevalier, and Jeff Chevalier had taken his story, I think, to the Daily Mail. And Brown had basically argued in court, this was about his private life, the Daily Mail had no business publishing any details of it. In the end... He lost his case and the court found that it had been misled by Lord Brown over the circumstances in which he'd met Jeff Chevalier. He had claimed... That he'd met, I think Jeff Chevalier, sort of jogging in a park, whereas in fact he'd met him. He, I think I think Jeff Chevalier was an escort, and he'd met Jeff Chevalier as an escort. And for I think reasons of personal embarrassment, Lord Brown felt he couldn't reveal this or didn't want to reveal this. Anyway, the the board again just said, "Look, you have misled a court, and therefore you've got to go. It's not appropriate for a BP chief executive to mislead a court." I think the thing that's interesting here is I personally think that if Lord Brown had been heterosexual, and if he'd had the kind of relationships with colleagues that Bernard Looney has had, I think it is highly unlikely, back in 2007, that the board would have done anything about it Mm -hmm. in any circumstances whatsoever. I think a whistleblower could have gone to the board and the board would have said, so what? You know, it is interesting to me the way that the standards that we expect of people, and you can see this, as I say, just in this extraordinary sort of soap opera of BP's history.
0: Yeah. The thing is, you know, as a a woman in all of this as well, this absolutely does not surprise me because, you know, I remember when I worked on uh, weekend business, a show that Jeff Randall presented on a Sunday afternoon, it was CEOs regularly on the show every week. And it was a running joke that because the show was on a Sunday, they would always have their pa with them it wasn't really their pa you know and i'm not sitting with every ceo because i don't want to get my bum sued <laughs> by everyone but it was just a running joke that they would always have somebody with them who was clearly who they were having an affair with and they were getting away with it because they were working on a Sunday and they would bring them in as their PA. It was, and we just used to joke about it, me and the other young runners every week about how ridiculous it was. But none of this surprises me at all, but you're right. It's about the attitudes to it have totally changed.
1: I, I mean, the other thing which I think we, we should point out before we move on to another subject is quite the significance of, of Looney's position. One of the things that happened last night is that both past and present BP people and indeed others who are sort of obsessed as I am with the future of the British economy, were in touch saying it really matters who replaces him, not just for BP, but arguably for the country. And the reason for that is that BP and Shell are by a wide margin the most important energy companies in the UK. They were both absolute powerhouses in oil and hydrocarbons. BP made a very famous commitment to reach net zero by 2050. Initially, when it made those commitments, investors, and this is one of the things that's fundamentally wrong with the short-termism of investors, but investors turned against BP. Its share price was in the doldrums for a long, long time. And then we had this extraordinary thing, which was, I think, towards the end of last year, BP said it was going to slow up it's reduced reliance on hydrocarbons on oil and its share price rose incredibly sharply because the stock market essentially rewards companies and this is shocking that you know are involved in greenhouse gas emissions and you know if they're going to take longer to cut them out and to go you know to become carbon neutral and to go into other green friendly forms of, you know, the, the slower the transition takes as far as investors are concerned, the better it is for the company, the faster a company wants to move towards responsible low emission uh, power, the more investors will punish it. Yeah. And this is this is terrible, right? And so uh, Looney was associated with the net zero, you know, aim. It's been stumbling. And therefore, who replaces him now? And then the attitude of the ball towards achieving that target. It's important for us. And arguably, because it's such a big player, it's one of the world's big players in oil and gas. It matters for the world.
0: Yeah. And just on that point, I think it's important to remind people just how big BP is in terms of its influence on, you know, not just the global economy, but the UK economy. 15,000 jobs it provides in the UK. And if you look at the supply chain, that's another 68,000 people. You know, it's one of the biggest names, as you say, in British business and looking at their kind of figures for 2022 they account for about, what is it, 0.79% of the UK's GDP, something like £20 billion.
1: It's big. I mean, it is also very accident-prone, and we shouldn't forget the deep water horizon. Pollution scandal in the Gulf of Mexico, all the sort of difficult times it's had with its Russian assets. So, you know, big British company, steeped in history, amazing soap opera. And I I think probably on that note, we should probably move on.
0: Yeah. So I really want to talk about, the world of music now because there's some really interesting stuff going on and I'm not just talking about Robert becoming lead singer in a band with Ed Balls We'll come back to that. Which is
1: obviously the big music event of the last couple of decades.
0: (laughs) And we're going to come back to that. But the big story at the moment is where all the money is going when you stream. And so I just want to explain this. So, of course, streaming revolutionized listening by giving users on-demand access to everything. And the music industry was really happy with this because it was a legitimate way to earn money for their songs being played after a very dark period of illegal downloads.
1: And we shouldn't forget that the music industry was in absolute dire straits.
0: Yeah, it really was. Really bad Way
1: You know, with the Napsters, people stealing their music, people not buying, whether it's cassettes or CDs or any of that stuff, because they could get it all free on pirate sites.
0: Yeah, exactly. So now, as things have grown with these streaming services and the music industry's done incredibly well out of it, they've been pushing algorithm-generated playlists, so it's for things like working out, chilling out, getting your baby to sleep, that's what I often use them for. But the issue, as far as the record labels and distributors are concerned, is that no matter how long the song is, who made it, the quality of the song, under the current royalty arrangements, each recording gets the same fee. Because streaming services pool the money from subscribers and split it based on each recording share of listening. So, for example, I might search for an artist I really like and love listening to. Let's say I'm going for a new Taylor Swift album. And then they will get the same fee as the random white noise track that the algorithm has played to put my baby to sleep that night. And the record labels don't think this is fair, do they, Robert?
1: Well, I think it's the artists who don't think it's fair. I mean, we've just seen a bunch of men even older than me, the Rolling Stones at the Hackney Empire, one of my favourite theatres, launching their new album. And it is bizarre that if you know my band decided to upload to Spotify or Apple Music our astonishingly wonderful set list, we would get the same revenue per track as the Rolling Stones would. And I have to say, even I, with my gigantic music ego think that's probably not fair
0: so the boss of universal leasing grinch has cut this deal with deezer which is a french streaming service to try and change this and the deal being that now it will divert more royalty money towards professional artists and they are defined as those who work draws at least a thousand streams a month which could be you robert and your band in the future so and and it takes it away from the kind of bots and the white noise soundtrack so It pays more for the songs, basically, and artists that listeners are seeking out.
1: I mean, I suppose the thing that worries me about this is one of the things that has simply not happened as a result of what people thought was going to be the democratization of music. I mean, you know, the great thing about both digital technology and the rise of Spotify and Apple Music and, you know, Tidal and all the rest is that anybody now can make music, good music, bad music, indifferent music, upload it, and it's available to everybody who's got a smartphone or a digital connection. It's available to everybody. So the world is technically your oyster. The problem is that actually you can't find this stuff. So if you're a struggling young band or a struggling young singer and you haven't got the backing of one of the music companies and all their marketing clout, you you may well remain in obscurity forever. And and now you're being told the amount you're going to be paid is going to be less than those who've already made it through the universals and the rest. Yeah, And so the unfairness of the system in a sense could get magnified.
0: Yeah. And also a big part of the problem here is because the system has been abused, hasn't it? Because one of the big issues in this is what are called streaming farms. So, In order to increase the money going to particular artists, particular distributors, people have been setting up streaming farms where songs will be constantly played on a loop to rack up the earnings for the distributor. And as you say, anyone now can be a distributor. So there's a real concern. And this is the thing that I think is absolutely fascinating and really sophisticated of the criminals is that criminal gangs allegedly are now using it as a way to launder money. The idea being that they would set up as a distributor. So this criminal gang would set up as a distributor and then put fake music on the streaming service. They would then use the cash that they need cleaning. So this illegally gained money, they'd use it to buy Bitcoin, often on the dark web, that Bitcoin would then be used to pay people to set up streaming farms to keep playing the fake music.
1: In case listeners don't understand, the point about using cryptocurrency like Bitcoin to pay those who are in the so-called farm, you know, basically clicking on particular music tracks is cryptocurrency is normally completely untraceable. So, you know, once you're paying people in that kind of currency it's very hard to link the farming back to the original criminals
0: yeah and then what that means is the streaming service would then pay the distributor in legitimate cash and bingo the money is now clean and just to put some stats on this jp morgan crunched some numbers on this and found that if someone uploaded their own 30 second track to a streaming service and then programmed their phone to listen to it on repeat 24 hours a day they would receive $1,200 Twelve hundred dollars a month in royalties.
1: What would be the power bill? For,
0: um, yeah, there is the electricity bill for doing that as well.
1: But but it is it is quite a sort of graphic illustration of the potential of abusing the system. I mean, as I understand it, though Spotify and Apple Music and and the big players are saying that they have put in place protections against their own services being abused in this way.
0: Yeah. They're trying to stop them, aren't they? But they're difficult to track down because they just pop up again somewhere else this is the thing with criminals as is always the case in every situation when you're trying to track them down they close down whatever it is they've just been caught by and open another one and executives estimate that there are as many as 10 percent of all music streams are fake ones you know coming from these these farms
1: and i mean I, and i think one should again just point out both the potential scale both of the legitimate revenues and the the criminal potentially criminal revenues. I mean, I was struck. Goldman Sachs did a report on it recently. Big investment bank. I mean, I think the streaming market they are, they estimate, or the whole sort of music market, is currently worth about thirty billion. They think it'll rise to an astonishing fifty billion dollars by twenty thirty. You know, wherever there is, I'm afraid, big money of this sort, there is a magnet mm. for dodgy people.
0: So, talking of uh, dodgy music, Robert, talk me through this new band. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, there's not, there's not a lot to explain. It's just a quartet <laughs> of slightly sad middle-aged men who've been looking for, a, a, you know, a bit of a distraction from uh, the realities of life. And it's me, as you mentioned, a former education secretary, former shadow chancellor, Ed Balls, on drums, a very nice bloke called John Wilson, who works at the BBC, and a a Brady journalist called Chris Taylor and we've been rehearsing and then unfortunately one of us had a connection to a local festival we did it at the weekend and I'm not going to say more than there are rather too many clips of our performance online. If anybody
0: wants to find out
1: <laughs> more about us,
0: what was really funny was before the gig, you'd said to me, "Oh, listen, I'm just doing this quietly. I don't, you know, want to make a big deal about it. I don't want to publicise it." And then I logged on onto X on Sunday, and then Katie Razzle, of course, BBC uh, correspondent, she tweeted a picture of you all, and before you knew it, it was off the scale. And everywhere. then I think
1: somebody quite clever noticed that there was a very familiar. Head in the shot. It turned out that
0: uh, Keir Starmer's a groupie.
1: Keir Starmer is definitely not a groupie, but Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, was in the audience. And I think other people have disclosed that former Labour leader Ed Miliband was there. Obviously, Ed (laughs) Balls' wife, Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper, was there. And I have to say, I mean, you know, in fairness to all of them, this is just a very successful Mm. North London street party, and they all happen to live locally. So,
0: That is so North London, that whole description of everything you've just told me.
1: Let's be clear, you know, other people... Can draw their own conclusions, but as you say, yeah. it was the quintessence of of the world we call North London.
0: What's the name of the band, by the way? Before we move on,
1: uh, so the name of the band, which we embrace as a joke, because Chris, the guitarist, was in the pub with a bunch of lefties, and he he told he told them about the band, and they said, "Oh, you're just a bunch of centrist dads." So we decided to embrace <laughs> the name. We decided to embrace centrist dad as a name. What is weird is how using that name seems to have upset quite a lot of people, particularly on the on the left, who don't really, don't, don't appear to think it's as funny as we think oh, it is.
0: Oh, man, people need to get a life. Right, should we move on? Let's go to a break, in fact.
1: Perfect. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston,
0: And me, Steph McGovern. Now, we've obviously got
1: a listener because one of them has emailed in a question. Why is petrol creeping up in price steadily again? This is from Andrea Thorpe. She says she's Googled but can't find the answer. what is it?
0: A couple of theories on this, but fundamentally it's because the price of oil has gone up. Uh, That's uh, partly because Russia and Saudi Arabia, who are two of the main oil-producing nations, they're part of a cartel, an oil cartel called OPEC. They've decided to cut supplies. So the oil is out there, but they want to push up the price, so they've stopped supplying as much to everyone. There's also concerns around uh, economic growth, aren't there, Robert, in terms of countries like China, the powerhouses of the world slowing down.
1: If the China economy continues to slow down, and there's a risk of that, then you know we may well get certainly the oil price uh, steady and even possibly falling. But then we got winter coming, and so it's it's all a bit un, it's all a bit unclear uh, yeah. what the outlook is. Firm forecasts on things like the oil price are always a bit risky. But I think the one thing we would say is we would love getting your questions. And if you want to put anything to us, we've got an email address. It's at gmail.com. But you can also send us in questions via our social media presence on Instagram and Twitter.
0: So that email address is restismoney at gmail.com. But as Robert said, do get in touch with us on our socials as well. We're on everything these days. Uh, Now, someone else who got in touch uh, after last week's show was Klarna. So they listened to our section on buy now, pay later, and wanted to have their say. Uh, They say that Klarna fully supports BNPL regulation and they've sent us lots of blog posts that they've written to that effect. Uh, They also wanted to clarify around affordability checks. They say, we run checks every time you use Klarna to make sure our customers can afford their purchases and we restrict services if payments are missed to stop debt building up. Robert, I'm sure we'll come back to this topic, won't we?
1: I think this whole issue of, you know, what checks are appropriate and the rest is going to run and run. I'm sure we'll come back to all of this. Um, Now, uh, (laughs) should we move on? Yes, let's move on. So something else that sort of happened this week was we got the latest statistics on how much we we're all being paid. And it showed the pay inflation, including bonuses, rising now at an annual rate of 8.5%. You'd say that was good news because it's higher than the inflation rate and stripping out bonuses uh, it's rising at a rate of 7.8%.
0: A lot of this is thanks to what's been happening in the public sector, isn't it, in terms of these kind of one-off pay deals to the NHS and civil servants?
1: You know, that's why the bonus figure is not 0.7 of a percentage point higher than the regular pay figure. It's good news that living standards are plainly rising again. There's a slightly anxious-inducing aspect of all of this, which is it shows that underlying inflation in the economy is still pretty high, even though unemployment has also gone up quite significantly and the levels of employment come down quite significantly. So interest rate rises by the Bank of England are having a negative effect on the economy in general, not apparently on pay rates. So we could easily see, and we'll come back to this next week, I'm sure, um, another rise in interest rates next week when the Bank of England announces. But there's also something else very significant about all of this, which is these pay rates are also relevant to the amount that the state pension has increased. The state pension goes up in April and it goes up under a formula called the triple lock. This was a formula introduced by David Cameron in 2010. And what it does is it protects the value of the state pension. And the rule goes that pensioners will receive the higher of the inflation rate. The rate of increase in total pay, that's the 8.5% we were talking about, or a minimum of 2.5%, whichever of those is higher. Now, obviously, 8.5%, the increase in total pay, uh, appears to be the highest of all of this. And it would mean that next April, pensioners would receive an increase in their pension that is likely to be double what the inflation rate will be at the time. If the Bank of England's forecast turns out to be correct, and let's be clear, the Bank of England's forecasting record recently on inflation has been terrible, but let's just give it the benefit of the doubt and say that by next spring, inflation comes down to the level it expects, roughly 4%. That would mean that the rate of increase in the state pension would go up in real terms, that's inflation-adjusted terms, by Uh, 4.5%. And that is a big reward for pensioners after years and years and years when pensioners have seen both the value of their assets, their houses go up very fast. pensioners on the whole, but older people own all the houses. And at a time when their incomes have gone up um, way more than working people and way more than working people on benefits. I'm just going to give you two stats. Okay. One is, and this is resolution foundation stuff, that since 2010, when the triple lock was introduced, the value in real terms of the pension has gone up 14%, whereas the value of benefit payments to people in of working age has fallen in real terms by 8%, right? That seems to many people to be very unfair.
0: I mean, that's the big issue, that kind of generational gap, isn't it, in terms of wealth between the two. And, you know, I'm sure everyone would say... That if you've worked hard all your life, you've paid into your national insurance, then of course, you know, you should be rewarded with a decent state pension when you retire. But the other big question around all of this is whether it's even affordable, because the way that and this is where the debate is around the triple lock, isn't it? Because if you increase a number each year by the highest of three measures... And if those measures are varying from year to year in terms of which one is higher, it steadily increased that number by more than all three measures. So it means using the triple lock system, state pensions are always going to go up more than inflation and more than wages are across the board, isn't it? Like there's the, I think Paul Johnson from the IFS explained this really well with an example. So he said, if prices rise by 20% this year and nothing next year, and earnings rise by nothing this year and 20% next year, then each will rise by 20% in total, but pensions will have gone up by 40%. And that's the problem. I mean, this in terms of cost, it currently costs the government, what is it, £112 billion a year. And the IFS uh, are saying it could be £6 billion more next year. And then by 2050, it could cost between £5 billion and £45 billion extra a year on top of inflation. And that is not sustainable.
1: It's why, for example, the Working Pension Secretary told ITV yesterday that he recognises that the triple lock is not sustainable in the long term. Uh, it's partly why, I mean, you alluded to this earlier, um, there's a debate going on in government whether this year they will uprate pensions by total Pay 8.5%, or whether they'll use the lower figure of 7.8%, which is still a huge increase. And the reason, I mean, the reason they're saying maybe 7.8% is again because you, you know, you were nodding to this earlier, there was one exceptional reason why total pay is, is a bit higher, and, and and that is that you know, these special one off cost of living payments were made to NHS workers.
0: It's hard for young people to stomach, though, this isn't it, particularly working age people, because you know, house prices are currently nine times average earnings. If you look back 30 years or whatever, it was four times
1: the un- Fairness in the economy is dramatic. I think the one thing I would say, though, is. Although somebody like, you know, Mel Stride, the working pension secretary says, you know, it's an unsustainable system in the long term, the politics of this make it almost impossible to abolish the triple lock. And the reason for that is because Tories traditionally are backed by older people. Older people turn out to vote. The notion that the government is ahead of a general election going to say we're going to abolish the triple lock and risk alienating those older people, I think it's for the birds. There's no chance in my view that Rishi yeah. Sunak is going to take that risk. And if he then says, we're going to keep the triple lock. Keir Starmer, whatever the size of his lead, all history suggests the Labour Party will buckle, even though at the moment it's not made a commitment to keep the triple lock. I suspect it will because nobody... In politics, facing a general election, wants to alienate older people who vote.
0: Do you remember when William Hague suggested that people under thirty should pay less tax, and he he was saying that older workers paid an extra one p in the pound, then under thirties could have a ten p in the pound cut in their income and capital gains taxes, and he tested this out on voters, and everyone hated it because most of the voters are older. Could we have the triple lock system across social security? So if it was on working age benefits too, so, you know, universal credit and things. I mean, it would be incredibly expensive, but could that even the field?
1: That is the fundamental problem. Of course, fairness would say, if you're gonna have a triple lock, it should apply to all people in need. And actually I would just point out, by the way, in one sense, the triple lock has done a good thing. In the eighties and nineties, pensioner poverty was a scourge, right? 40% of older people were living genuinely in poverty. Triple lock has more or less eliminated all of that. We now have incredible poverty among younger people, people in jobs, you know, reliant on food banks, not being able to make ends meet. This is the, sc- the current scandal. Something has to be done about the scandal of working age poverty. But the problem with the solution that says you have a triple lock for universal credit is very high public sector debt. We have high deficits in this country. In order to have a triple lock for welfare, you would have to then say, "Well, what are we going to cut elsewhere?" Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's a ve- that, that's an important discussion, and it's a discussion we will be having.
0: Yes, it certainly is. And that that thing, as you say, you, poverty among young people is something that we're both passionate about, and we'll talk about again uh, on the show. Let's move on.
1: So another sort of huge corporate development that took our interest was actually in the world of football and it's the takeover of Everton. Give us the background, Steph.
0: Yeah, uh, and I should say as well, this is something I know Gary and the lads uh, have talked about on The Rest is Football. Uh, so if you want to get the football analysis from then, do uh, have a listen to that. What we're going to do is look at the kind of business and economic perspective of all of this. So just to remind you of, of what's happened, this is Premier League team Everton uh, are very close to being sold to Miami-based investment firm at 777. It follows months of talks and, you know, there is the potential still for the deal to fall apart. but. This is, you know, really pivotal for Everton because they've had a really rough time on and off the pitch. And uh, I, for one, have lived through this at home because half my family are Borough fans, the other half are Everton, so I've spent a lot of time listening to my family practically in tears over this. Um, but yeah, Everton narrowly avoided relegation the last two seasons, and in that time, the clubs posted losses again this year, five years in a row now, and in, in, a, in total, that's something like £430 million of losses over the last five years, uh, with their current owner, uh, Farhad Mashiri, at the helm of all of this.
1: And we should also remind people that it was a, a bloke called An a sanctioned um, oligarch, was also uh, an owner for quite a long
0: time. Yeah, he got binned off and obviously all the sanctions came in, didn't he? So uh, it's now this deal, as we say, is uh, for uh, 777 to buy it. Robert, do you want to tell us a bit about who they are?
1: So look, they're a Miami-based uh, investment firm. And what is really striking to me, this is one of the big changes in world football, is they are what's known as a multi-club investor and they own Red Star in Paris, Belgium Standard Liege, Vaste de Gama in Brazil, Spain's Sevilla, who actually Arsenal are gonna face in the Champions League. That's my team. A club in Melbourne in Australia, and they've got a stake in Germany's Hertha. And they are, you know, they're part of a trend of these investors owning lots of different clubs. I mean, famously, you know, Abu Dhabi that owns Manchester City, they have clubs all over the world. And as I understand it, the point in a business sense of owning lots of clubs, I talked to a mate of Michael David Hellier, who is the sort of expert about this at at Bloomberg. And I mean, he says the argument for this multi-club ownership is that you can Pool marketing costs. Data in football is a huge thing now. If you have one data center analyzing the performance of all your players, that is efficient. If you've got one central, I mean, sponsorship, an enormously important part of football. Again, if you have one center organizing the sponsorship for all your different clubs, again, there are economies of scale there. However, one of the things that is really quite striking about football. Despite the fact all this money is going in and it's no longer just people buying clubs as trophy assets, it's still not obvious to me that there is a proper cash generating business there. Yes, there are assets. And one of the interesting things about Everton is the, the redevelopment of their stadium and, you know, whether there's a big asset play there.
0: That's not finished though, is it? So that needs paying for still.
1: But in terms of generating net cash, One market where there is an enormous long track records of owners making fortunes is in America when it comes to, you know, whether it's football or baseball or hockey. And one of the things that's very striking with the US, you know, this is a US business buying a British club. US owners were the driving force behind, you know, the possible creation of a super league within Europe, as you remember, and a league in which there would not be ever any relegation. It would essentially be a cartel of the big clubs. This idea among the American owners of trying to create A super league has not gone away because if you look at the American model, that is the way that they make serious money. Although the fans hate it,
0: I mean, if you look at the Premier League now, it's if this goes through, it will be half the ownership will be US companies, Um, and I I guess they do it for a couple of reasons. You know, the value of the clubs keep rising, and and it's all the data as well as you say, which is so valuable. What I find interesting about Triple Seven, though, is um, you know their background is is investing in aviation and and insurance originally and it was only a couple of years ago they decided to start investing in in sports clubs and and in particular football clubs kind of coming out of the pandemic but what's interesting is when you hear the founders talk they keep talking about this new commercialism that they want to bring to football so they're saying it's not just about selling hot dogs this is about also selling house insurance and other financial services and other products, which that kind of blows my mind, the idea of, you know, is it kind of like the Tescopoli of football? We're going to have these, uh, you know, these investors who come and buy the clubs and then they start trying to pitch everything they've got in their portfolio to them. Fans are not going to love that, are they?
1: But but, but an interesting question. I mean, so yes, it's true that, you know, if you just, you only have to look at what's happened. I mean, obviously the Glazers haven't succeeded in getting the value they wanted for Manchester United yet. But if you just look at the way that the value of these football clubs has gone up, yes, it's a very clear asset play, but, it's, it's been an asset play, rising prices for football clubs at a time of, you know, more or less zero interest rates over the last 15 years. Interest rates are now back all over the world. It's not obvious, actually, that this asset play is going to work for these owners
0: as a Middlesbrough fan, it is so refreshing to have Steve Gibson as the chairman who bought the club when he was 26, who grew up in like, you know, a rough part of Borough with Cammy, with Chris Kamara, funnily enough, and ended up, you know, he still owns the club. Yes, okay, we're not doing particularly well this season. Last season was much better, although we, we should have got promoted. We didn't, we're terrible this season so far. But anyway, he's pumped loads of money to it and it's, it's so heartening for all the fans that we are like supporting the man who grew up in our area and, you know, owns the club and has done so much for the local economy. So, Everyone should be a bit more (laughs) spread. This
1: is obviously something I say to myself pretty much every every morning (laughs) when I wake up. We
0: should probably wrap things up, shouldn't we? I know we'll probably come back to, well, the, the business of sport is fascinating. We'll come back to that again and lots of other things we've discussed. But thank you for listening. Like we said earlier, do send in any questions you might have for us on any of this too. And we'll hopefully be able to answer them for you on our socials or a reminder of that email restismoney at gmail.com right should we say bye-bye
1: thanks very much everybody goodbye
0: bye-bye